Coming up, a conversation with an expert on the Enneagram personality framework, where we discuss how better understanding of personality types can lead to stronger relationships and fuller lives. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan, your host. This is our last episode before Easter or Resurrection Sunday on April 17th. So we wish you a happy Easter or Resurrection Sunday. Hope that you can celebrate the resurrection of Jesus uh, in community. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the Enneagram. Probably everyone listening has at some point taken some type of personality assessment, whether the Enneagram or one of the many others that are popular these days. It seems to be a fixture of modern business culture and in many places, modern church culture as well. My observation, it's less popular in academia or the university world, though even there, there are examples of enthusiasm uh, for taking different personality assessments. I'm trained as a historian, so it's interesting to me to ask myself why these types of assessments have become so popular in recent decades. You know, a question like, what number are you, would not have made sense to previous generations, at least not in the way uh, it's meant in the Enneagram world. And a string of numbers like INTJ would look more like a typo than a personality type to, uh, to previous generations as well. And yet today, many, many people find deep meaning and value in discovering the unique patterns of their personalities as they navigate life decisions and relationships. And, and work relationships as well. Of the many complex ways we could think historically about the rise of personality assessments, and especially the one on topic today on the Enneagram, I think one way is just recognizing that we live in an age very rich in information but poor in wisdom or ways to discern how to process and make sense of information. We often encounter significant decision moments or relational dynamics and our default is often to privilege our past experiences or expectations or fears uh, or our instincts. And at their best, frameworks like the Enneagram let us be aware of our own tendencies, both the constructive ones and the destructive ones, and help us to mature in discernment and decision-making and to grow in personal wisdom. And that's where today's conversation comes in. Our own Dan Johnson sits down with Dr. Drew Moser to discuss in broad terms the Enneagram personality typology and how better understandings of personality types can lead to stronger relationships and fuller lives. So a bit about our guest, uh, Dr. Drew Moser is the author of The Enneagram of Discernment, The Way of Vocation, Wisdom, and Practice. He's a certified Enneagram teacher, a professional member of the International Enneagram Association, and as sort of, I guess you'd call it his day job, he's the Dean of Student Engagement and Professor of Higher Education at Taylor University. 
And there's more details about how to connect with Drew and his work in the end notes, including his website and the podcast that he runs, uh, that he hosts as well on the Enneagram. So finally, Drew visited us in at Upper House in early March, and his visit included a half-day workshop where people got to work through some material uh, on their own uh, personality types and Enneagram numbers and be led by Drew through some deeper thinking on that. Andrew was also speaking at a local church about vocational discernment for particularly people in their 20s and 30s. So these are just some of the events that we host here uh, every semester. And as always, check out upperhouse.org slash events for a list of upcoming events and reach out to us at podcast at slbrownfoundation.org with any comments or questions about this episode. So without further ado, here's an Upwards conversation with Dr. Drew Moser. Well, hey, welcome to the Upwards podcast. My name is Daniel Johnson, and I am the Director of Technology Innovation and Digital Promotion here at Upper House. And today I am joined by Dr. Drew Moser. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you. It's great to be with you. Great to have you here. Uh, Drew, uh, as you heard from the intro, uh, you are an Enneagram expert. (laughs) And so uh, we wanted to just kind of frame up a little bit of, for those few people out there that may have never heard of the Enneagram, exactly what is the Enneagram? And then how is it actually used in like principle and practice in those associations? Yeah. So the Enneagram is a personality framework. So on the surface, not unlike some other personality typologies that are out there, you know, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with Myers-Briggs or the Big Five or Finder or some of those. So in that sense, it's similar in that it tries to help people understand their personality type. Uh, now, what makes it a little different, though, is that it, the, the Enneagram kind of works uh, at a different level in terms of the core motivations, right? What are the things internally that drive the way in which we think and feel and behave in the world? And, uh, and so the Enneagram then has nine different types, which are represented by these points on a circle. And so if you have seen the image, those points that are on the, this circle or have these interconnected lines, each of those points have a number, and then those numbers represent different personality types. So that, in essence, is what the Enneagram is. Now, it's used in all sorts of different ways. It uh, And so if you Google the Enneagram, you can easily get overwhelmed and confused because it's used in a psychological context, just pure psychology context. It's used in a spiritual context. And so you can find Enneagram applications in just about any sort of faith expression or some combination of the two. And uh, it's, it's an open source tool in that no one owns it, so it can be used in a lot of different ways. Um, so I tend to use it. Uh, from my Christian faith perspective as a helpful tool or resource that we can steward to better understand who we are and then better understand others. Uh, it's gained a lot of popularity in the last few years. Yes. <laughs> so what has been your kind of journey with it? When did you first get introduced to this? And then what, maybe what's been your journey since kind of that introduction sure. through kind of for your professional life as well as personal? Yeah, so it has grown in popularity. It seems... Like you can't enter a social setting without the Enneagram coming up in conversation, whether you like it or not. 
But uh, I was first introduced to it back in 2008. So I was working for a nonprofit missions organization in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I uh, was told by our uh, team leader that we were going to do this team development exercise called the Enneagram. And I instantly kind of sighed and rolled my eyes and thought, oh, no, another personality assessment that's going to kind of peg me and reduce me to a few labels. And so I went in skeptical, be totally honest, which is ironic, given that I spent a lot of time <laughs> working with the Enneagram now. But I went in really skeptical and then came out of that session kind of blown away that uh, there was this thing that uh, out there that was kind of reading my mail, so to speak. It felt like it. Uh, the Enneagram was able to put some language to some things about myself that I didn't have yet, but really resonated with me. So that's when I uh, was introduced to it. And then my entire career had, since has been spent with college students and young adults. And, uh, you know, as you know, <laughs> that's a pretty uh, formative time in terms of uh, college students discovering who they are and what that means for their life. And so the Enneagram has been really helpful. I've used it ever since. Now, uh, I got really serious about the Enneagram probably six or seven years ago now when I, I really started digging into it. And it came because I was uh, writing, co-writing this book on vocation called Ready or Not. And I kept running into this um, this observation that I couldn't shake, which was it's really hard, if not pretty close to impossible, to understand your sense of calling if you don't know who you are. So that self-awareness is so foundational, and, and that just led me kind of really down the rabbit hole, <laughs> the Enneagram, and here I am today. Yeah. I want to dive in a little bit of the student aspect. Sure, um, sure. A lot of our audience works with students at UW-Madison or in some time of contacts working with students. With the kind of the elongatedness of adolescence that's happening sure. and brain development, you yeah. know, kind of research saying is taking longer, maybe into the 20s or yeah. early 30s even at this point. Um how do you work with students who are kind of trying to find themselves knowing some of those things? Just curious on any wisdom or thoughts you have um, with that. Yeah. Well, I think everything you just said, I think is important to know, right? When working with college students and it should give us some compassion uh, when we work with college students, because the way in which we've structured co the college environment probably d doesn't always serve them well, Right we expect them to figure out some pretty important aspects of life really early on major, you know, career path, these sorts of things. When in fact, as you indicated, you know, their uh, prefrontal cortex of their brains isn't fully developed yet and probably won't be until the mid twenties, generally speaking. And that's the area of the brain that we use for kind of planning, abstract thinking, these things that are really necessary in order to kind of plan a life. Right. So, and then we also upend their schedules every three months. You know, we, we, as soon as they get used to a routine, we kind of flip the switch on them and then they have to figure it out again. Right. So those things are not helpful. It should give us some compassion in the midst of that though. I think there's still really good work we can do. And I think, uh, one of the things that we can do, and I think the college environment is, is ripe for this is help them kind of lean into questions of identity, right? Who am I? And which then requires us to understand what is my personality and how, how does my personality um, help me 
and hinder me because every personality type is a mixed bag. And so understanding that is so helpful, right? Because uh, it then helps kind of counter a few, I think, damaging narratives that college students um, often hear, which is you can do anything, right? Yeah. (laughs) We just had that conversation. (laughs) The world is your oyster, (laughs) right? You can do anything. Not true, right? Right. Uh, You know, and and then another kind of message that I think it it, uh, counters is that, but you have to have everything figured out (laughs) right away. So there's all this pressure, right? And it said, no, you don't have to have everything figured out. You just need to, uh, you know, figure out who you are, better understand that, and then kind of take the next right step after the next right step (laughs) towards whatever your future holds, right? I think that's where it can be helpful. How have you seen the Enneagram being helpful for people in kind of a transitional time in their lives? Like, I think, you know, you're just talking about college students and kind of this three years or three months, people kind of adapting to things. You know, maybe they're at an academic institution for four or five years. They have this major transition that happens or even major career transition, a, a new child coming into your life, um, aging parents. Like, I'm just wondering about the Enneagram in relationship to that um, and what wisdom would you have for, for folks? Uh, there's tremendous insight that can be gained from any time we're faced with kind of a proverbial fork in the road or transition or major decision. And understanding your personality can be helpful in a number of ways. First, I do think it helps us see the ways in which uh, we try to show up in the world and live in it. Uh, Our personality is kind of the front man for that, you know, or front woman, you know. And I think that's uh, that's important to note. And so the way in which we present ourselves to the world uh, helps us in a lot of ways, but also has some limitations. And so understanding that. Um, that gets pronounced or enhanced when we're faced with difficult, challenging, or stressful situations, right? And so knowing, okay, here's what I tend to do really well <laughs> when these situations arise from what I know about my personality, and here's where I tend to struggle, and, and therefore I can look uh, to other resources, other people in my community to help me in the ways in which I tend to uh, maybe have some blinders or just not do so well. Um, it can also, you know, there's an aspect of the Enneagram, those interconnected lines that I mentioned, uh, provide a lot of insight uh, regarding how our personality type tends to respond when we're stressed or when we're thriving. And there's different schools of thought about this, but just generally speaking, we tend to exhibit some of the more challenging or unhealthy aspects of a certain type when we're stressed. <laughs> and uh, and we tend to exhibit some of the healthier or you know, what we would say generally more positive aspects of another type when we're thriving, Right. And so when we're in stress, we can notice those things and then have a better response. And, and, and in, in so doing, maybe see the difference between just a mere reaction versus an actual response. Absolutely. I, I've, <laughs> I've noticed that a lot about myself as an Enneagram too. Um, and, uh, you know, in the journey of often, I think as a two, I can jump into kind of a victim mindset of things. Right. And so um, I think just I've noticed that over the last couple of years and wanting to know how I, in health, being able to kind of move into that eight area. Right. Um, and uh, those leadership aspects. But I do. I mean, I, I feel like this internal battle continually with kind of this victim mindset um, that sometimes is a trap of a, of a two um, or at least my experience of that. Yeah. And I think that's a good example of, you know, our personality type 
uh, is really a patterned kind of character structure, right? That we use for efficiency's sake. Every and and it works most of the time, generally speaking, for us until we encounter a situation which it doesn't, right? And then that's when we start. We can see some red flags, right? And then hopefully have a better response as opposed to just falling into maybe some same unhealthy, similar unhealthy patterns of living or responding. Yeah. yeah. I want to try to transition a little bit and talk about some vocation in relationship to the Enneagram. So, so how can the Enneagram be used as a kind of a discerning tool? A lot of your work is uh, with the book is in relationship to that and some other things, but just wondering about kind of the decision uh, discerning mechanisms around the Enneagram in relationship to vocation and calling specifically. Yeah. So I think there's, there's a lot of insight there. I think first I would say I, I would caution anyone against looking at trying to match a personality type with a career, right? Mm-hmm. So you start to see this, um, and and you may see a higher concentration of certain types in certain industries, but that does not mean like it, there's not that one to one correlation, right? And like an example would be t- the type five in engineering, right? Type fives are highly analytical, uh, tend to study up a lot, acquire knowledge, uh, like to. Th- think cognitively, analytically through things. So you can see why engineering would be nice, right? That does not mean, though, if you're a five, you can't be an artist or a musician um, or, or a teacher or any, anything. And so first I'd say, uh, you know, no matter what your personality type, you know, there's room for you in any career path, right? And, um, now, the other thing I'd say, too, more broadly with vocation, I think uh, my view of vocation uh, expands to the whole of life. I think God cares about us. Um, in all of our aspects and fears in spheres of life. And so he calls us in all of those spheres. Now, when we understand that alongside our understanding of our personality, I think we can uh, gain some further insights into how we can more effectively uh, discover, explore, and respond to a sense of God's calling. So uh, a few examples. One would be, um, you know, I, I do a lot of... Uh, work with the what I call the settling statements of the Enneagram. And so I think each each type has a core want. Um, and that's like that motivation that I talked about before that kind of drives the way in which we think, feel, and behave in the world. But what often happens in a broken world, or if we question whether or not we deserve or can get what we want, we often settle for something that's less than best. So an example for me is a I'm a dominant type three. And uh, threes want worth and value. Uh, and we want to feel inherently valuable and worthy, and we want to create value and worth in our environment. But when we question whether or not we are valuable and worthy, or if we have what it takes to, to create value and worth wherever we are, we will settle for crafting an image in order to be impressive and productive and successful and create value, right? So knowing that about myself, uh, I think then should give me pause to say, hey, not everything is mine to achieve, right? <laughs> not everything is mine to succeed in. Because uh, threes, we, we threes can have delusions of grandeur where we can see ourselves succeeding at just about anything, which is not the most discerning thing, right? And so knowing that about ourselves, I think should give us some pause to, and, and cause us to think through maybe, okay, uh, God, what do you have in store for me? <laughs> and um, what does my community have to say to speak into uh, my opportunities and how I'm discerning my sense of calling? So that'd be one thing. 
another thing quickly is that the Enneagram also, uh, you know, it has all these different triadic groupings that it breaks. Uh, it kind of organizes the nine types into groups of three. One of those um, is the stances, which uh, I talked about at the workshop <laughs> and uh, spent a lot of time on those. But it's a particular triadic grouping in which three types are grouped together because they have in common uh, that they tend to neglect or distort a certain center of intelligence. And this comes from a, a long-held teaching in the Enneagram that we have three sensor, centers of intelligence. We have our heads, we have our hearts, and our guts, right? And those are uh, three ways in which we can take in information, interpret, and analyze our world. Here's the thing about our personality. Again, it's about efficiency. So we tend to only really use one kind of supported by another, and then the third kind of gets left out of a group of keep away. And that is to, I, I would say, our detriment when it comes to discerning our vocation. If we leave out one of these centers of intelligence, I think we're, we're leaving a resource kind of off the table that could be really helpful to us. And so knowing that about our type then helps us, okay, for, for instance, as a three, I tend to neglect or misuse my heart center, right? The emotional intelligence. I may have it in terms of how I interact with others, but I may not use it in terms of how I discern my vocation very well. But knowing that about myself can cause me to be more intentional in that way and therefore more discerning that makes sense. That, those would be just a few examples. There are many, but that's, that's very, very good. <laughs> so in the book, you talk a lot about wisdom and I, I think we live in a culture and an age where knowledge is just at our fingertips all the time, but to really to cultivate wisdom, I think is really an important practice. Yeah. And so, um, and so it's something that we're striving for. I think sometimes we misrepresent uh, knowledge for wisdom, right? So those aren't necessarily interchangeable, but often they become interchangeable in really unhealthy ways. Um, so how do we use the Enneagram to really kind of cultivate wisdom um, in a current kind of, you know, technology integrated world where everything's at our fingertips? That's a great question because you're right. Um, the, the information age has not necessarily made us more wise, right? I think the fact that we have all the data we need, we think we need at our thumb tips in our pockets, and yet we still are kind of confused by this idea of who am I? Why am I here on this earth? Where am I going with my life? You know, that that's telling, right? And so I think the Enneagram can help us cultivate wisdom by better knowing who we are, raising that level of self-awareness and that understanding, and then also providing a pathway to growth and development that in so doing, I think, cultivates wisdom. So uh, one of the things that I say over and over again is that type is the trailhead. So in that current surge of popularity that you talked about with the Enneagram, I think that that's one of the things that we are at risk of reducing the Enneagram to just some traits about type, right? And it's a shorthand that we can use to talk about one another. Uh, when in fact, I think the Enneagram is best used as a dynamic kind of growth and development resource in which once we understand our personality type, that's where the growth and development journey begins, doesn't end. And so once we know that, then, uh, you know, for instance, you as a two, type two, you can say, okay, type two is your trailhead, right? It doesn't mean you need to get rid of your two-ness. In fact, nor should you. I think there's so much about your personality that was given to you by God to be used, you know, for the sake of God's kingdom, right? Yeah. But uh, what you can also know, though, are some of those things that I mentioned, that the settling statements that at your core, you want connection, right? And you want that connection to be marked by love. And, and so, okay, if that's the case, 
and that prompts me and compels me to help and be other focused and all of that. At what point does that become detrimental, right? Where the law of diminishing returns kicks in and you've kind of overspent yourself. You've neglected legitimate needs and in so doing have forsaken wisdom, right? Yeah. And if we reverse engineer that, then we can see, okay, uh, you have these innate skills and capacities, but let's not overdo them. Let's steward them with more wisdom. Then you can use that desire for connection marked by love to help and be connected to others in such a way that uh, it's directed in the right places, you know, and you're saying yes to the right things. Um, and so it, in so doing, you cultivate wisdom because you, you learn to be more discerning, right? Which is the essence of wisdom. I want to ask you a question kind of re- a little bit related to this. Um, but I, I think one of the lost arts that we have in our culture is mentorship. You know, I, I think we often um, replace mentorship for an online or a book or something, but that personal, yeah. like one-on-one kind of mentorship, somebody that's been on this journey of life, whether professionally or personally or a bunch of different spheres of life can reflect in. My question, I guess, relies to around the Enneagram is, you know, if I am a certain number of the Enneagram and I'm looking for a mentor, yeah. what type of mentor should I be looking for in that way? Yeah, that's a good question. I think because it, I think there are a number of healthy expressions of what you're asking about. Uh, and this is also true of any sort of relational connection, whether it's uh, boyfriend, girlfriends, spouses, friends, no matter what. Uh, I think the best sort of relational connection is a healthy person connecting with another healthy person, regardless of the type. That said, I think that there is some benefit in, and there would have been a lot of benefit in young 22-year-old type 3 Drew, (laughs) knowing that about myself, and then finding a type 3 who was maybe in their 40s, like I am now, and who had figured some things out about their threeness and and weren't so necessarily conflicted about it and kind of tripping over themselves, that could be really valuable. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to go and find someone who's older than you that's really healthy, that knows the Enneagram and is your type, right? right? right, right, right. Um, but if that opportunity presents itself, take advantage of it, yeah. you know, uh, leverage that. Yeah. Uh, but I think what what is most helpful is that the Enneagram is best used when it helps you better understand who you are and you make the necessary change with that knowledge. You work on yourself. What comes with that is that you do realize, okay, I have some great things to offer this world. And there are some things that are limiting, you know, and I, in which I'm just not very good at, right? And then once you know those things, then you can also find a mentor who can maybe help you with those things, right? So they, they don't loom kind of so large over you or uh, over your life. And that can be a helpful way for mentorship uh, to kind of be paired with the Enneagram as well. One of the things I really appreciate about the book and your research uh, around the Enneagram is kind of this duality of kind of the individual expression and really kind of knowing the in- your individual expression of the Enneagram but also a communal aspect and from the workshop and the book and everything, can you speak a little bit to kind of more of those communal kind of dynamics of things around the Enneagram team life, work life, family life. Like I think as the popularity is gaining 
um, I think that is a lot of our context. And so I'm just wondering if there are any tools or thoughts you have around some of those more communal um, aspects of, of life together. Yeah, because I think that's the next eventual step. Once we understand ourselves really well, I think the Enneagram then also should be used to help us better understand one another, right? So, um, and this can take on many forms, right? So if uh, you know your type and you know that your boss is a different personality type, that's really helpful to know, right? Because then you can uh, begin to start to connect some dots about why they may respond or react to the same situation at work differently than you, right? So that's one. It can help you be a better follower. I think it can also help you be a better leader too, because you start to realize, okay, I'm naturally inclined to lead from my personality, which is great, but also incomplete, right? And so you can start to recognize and acknowledge and celebrate and appreciate uh, the different strengths that others on your team bring, right? And then another example I gave at the workshop is I I do a lot of work with uh, the Enneagram and time. So I think uh, the types tend to have some tendencies related to whether or not they're future-focused, present-focused, or past-focused. And you can see this in a meeting anytime you're meeting with other people. You can see that the future types are wanting to look ahead, right? And they're wanting to focus on the strategic plan or what's coming up in six months, whatever it might be. The present types are kind of more focused on the urgent matters at hand. Like, no, we got to get this done right now and then we can plan, right? Whereas the past-focused types are, are more concerned with, you know, the tradition or reflection or a debriefing. And so they will be more likely to say, hey, we actually haven't finished processing or debriefing or reviewing that thing we just did, right? And so you can start to see where people miss each other in the same meetings, doing the same work, right? And knowing this about ourselves can be really helpful to curb our own kind of overdoing it (laughs) in in our personality and also understand and make room for others. Because let's be honest, all three of those perspectives are of time are really important, right? Yeah. Somebody, uh, there's a couple that at the workshop yesterday that stood up and uh, the husband said something like, Hey, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out our future planning, but uh, both of our types kind of are our main uh, ideas around time are our past. Right. right and right. so he's like, we, we always try to have trouble in doing this. And it was like this kind of like light bulb moment for right. them, which was really cool. It was yeah. Really fun to see that. It was, yeah fun to see and they they kind of like threw their hands up yeah. in the air like now we know why we can never plan anything right <laughs> yeah. that was good so i want to dive a little just deeper into the time thing because i i think that was definitely one of the most powerful things about your research you're, you're contributing so much to the enneagram piece but um the, the time thing was just brand new concept um from the book and from the workshop yesterday can you kind of help place people like maybe number wise into these three different areas and then, um, like, what what would they need to be thinking about or knowing about that would be helpful for them, kind of in this time, time dynamic? Yeah. So what I what I do in the book um, is I look at those stances that I mentioned, which is that particular triadic grouping uh, that tend to have a common what I call time stacking, in that they have a dominant perspective on time that tends to be the the main focus, yeah. supported by another perspective on time, and that often all that energy comes at the expense of a third right? The difference, there's three stances with three types each. So the uh, first one we can talk about are the assertive types. So that'd be the threes, the sevens, and the eights. And these types are 
very future focused, right? Uh, we, and cause I'm in this stance, so I can say, you know, we, we tend to look ahead, we plan, we kind of, you know, I, I think I said yesterday, eat goals for breakfast. You know, we, we have these tendencies to always be looking ahead. Uh, now that is supported by the present. So we're present enough to get things done, but we don't necessarily need them to be perfect. You know, we tend to be pretty efficient and productive because we have an eye always on what's next, right? Now, what often gets left out is the past. The past is a drag. Why Why spend time on it? Let's move ahead, moving on, ever onward. You know, that's kind of the mantra. So that'd be one, yep. uh, one stance. Now, there's another stance called the dependent stance. Okay. These are the ones, the twos, and the sixes. Yep. And those types uh, tend to be very present-focused. And so they kind of suffer from what I call the tyranny of the urgent. There's always a million things right in front of them that they have to tend to. And that is supported by the past, a past that was either either better than the way things are now. And so there's a lot of energy to try to return to that. And then what often gets left out is the future for ones, twos, and sixes. And by future, I I mean a good future, a vision for what could be, not a a fear of what all is going to go wrong, right? So that would be those types. And then we have the withdrawn types which are the fours, the fives, and the nines. And the withdrawn types uh, tend to be past-focused, supported by the future, and they tend to leave out the present. So they kind of have this this kind of uh, leapfrog (laughs) experience of um, wanting to cling to a past, you know, when things were either more calm or they were more fully known or they were more competent or all sorts of other things by type. Or they can have an idyllic future of just kind of dreaming, you know, about something that maybe is a little bit too idyllic. And what often gets lost is showing up fully in the present, right? And so what I do for each of these um, uh, stances is I recommend that they do some intentional work to kind of bring up and cultivate more that that distorted kind of neglected time perspective. And so for those assertive types, practice what I call sacred delay ways of looking back to the past that can be helpful so we don't keep making the same mistakes. For the dependent types, you know, it's cultivating what I call sacred vision, dropping (laughs) the things that they feel are so urgent for just a little bit, lifting their gaze up and considering what could be, right? And for those withdrawn types, uh, sacred presence, Um, cultivating the ability to show up fully to what matters most in the here and now. Uh, you mentioned yesterday in the workshop about um, I thought a really helpful kind of visual aid for people around you know going into a hardware store, going like you're going to be painting a room. You go into a hardware store, you are wanting to paint a room green, <laughs> and there's you know hundreds of different greens to choose from, right? And that the enneagram isn't expressed maybe the same way even by type, right? Can you speak a little bit into that, so. Along those lines, I think it's worth acknowledging that, you know, reducing all of humanity to nine types is kind of silly or ridiculous, right? But if we look at the nine types as a color wheel, I think it's helpful. So if, you know, like you just said, if we wanted to paint our kitchen green, we go to the hardware store and we tell the employee who's, you know, hopefully there to help us, right, Um, that we want to paint our kitchen green, then, you know, what's the employee going to do? Say, well, here are all the different shades of green we have, right? At their core, they're all green. But the variation in the shading is really significant. And I think that's what's helpful to know once we kind of dig into the Enneagram and learn more about our personality. 
that we share this common motivation or this common drive with others that have our same type. But there are uh, beyond that, there are a lot of differences that can be. So you can encounter someone who's the same type as you and think we're not the same person. (laughs) (laughs) And you're right. You are not the same person. You know, these are not, you know, kind of carbon copies of humanity, right? There, uh, there's a lot of complexity with kind of a shared common motivation. Well, just a couple questions as we end our time together. What's a secret about the Enneagram that most people should know, but don't know? Oh man. So there's a few, and this is, this kind of gets into once you start studying the Enneagram, there's really no bottom to it. And, you know, it's kind of this onion with these infinite amount of layers that you can keep peeling. But I think, um, one of the things that can be most helpful that I've found, uh, would be that are, is a bit lesser known. One would be the conflict styles. So this would be another triadic grouping of the Enneagram that groups the types by the ways in which they tend to engage or avoid conflict, which seems helpful, right? Cause we are human beings in a broken and fallen world and we are inevitably going to encounter conflict. And so it can help us understand why, okay, I tend to, uh, to approach conflict this way, but this person I'm in relationship with, is approaching it totally different. That's why we keep missing each other, right? That's really helpful to know. So then, okay, where do we find common ground in order to bring about reconciliation? And that seems to be one of the most helpful things that we need right now in our, you know, divisive, polarized society, all the things we know and kind of uh, wring our hands about our current state of our world. I think maybe if we could better understand the ways in which our personality shows up, when it comes to conflict, that could be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Curious on what types of resources do you recommend to people the most? Um, websites, books, podcasts. I mean, what does that look like? What do you kind of recommend to folks as they're kind of yeah. wanting to explore? I'm maybe thinking about the maybe a couple of different levels, like the beginner, right? Like where would you suggest a beginner start? And then maybe somebody that has done some research, kind of has knows their type a little bit. Yeah kind of that next level, uh, what are some resources for them as well? So I think um, there are a lot of good, solid primers on the Enneagram out there. You know, probably the most popular would be uh, Suzanne Stabile and Ian Kron's The Road Back to You. It's a really accessible introduction to the Enneagram, but there are others too. Sure. If you want to dig deeper, and a lot of it just depends on which particular kind of layer you want to peel and explore, right? But but I'd start there. Uh, Suzanne also has a podcast that I think um, called The Enneagram Journey that could be helpful as well. And then her co-author Ian Cron has a podcast called Typology. And uh, what's good about, you know, the way in which they go about their podcast is they tend to interview people from the perspective of their type, right? So I was a guest on Suzanne's years ago, and she interviewed me as a type three, right? So that's good. And then for like next level stuff, I kind of wrote the Enneagram of discernment as like, okay, you know about the Enneagram now what? Right. And so it's kind of a a level two, so to speak resource. If you've never encountered the Enneagram before though, I have a little bit of introductory material to get you caught up to speed. There's a deluge of books that are out there. I I have some resources that I recommend in the back. So anything by Rizzo and Hudson tends to be pretty good. Um, And their, their thinking had evolved over time, but I think most people, tend to look at the blue book, the wisdom of the Enneagram. That's kind of the, uh, it's known as the blue Enneagram book, (laughs) Uh, but it's pretty, it's thick. It's daunting, you know, um, another resource, uh, or area that I think is really helpful, especially if you work for an organization or in the corporate sector 
is anything by uh, Awareness to Action International. This group is led by Mario Sakura, Enneagram teacher based out of Philadelphia, who's an executive coach. And he presents the Enneagram almost exclusively and primarily for the corporate sector. And so I think it's really helpful, right? Because that it can be sometimes hard to translate what you know about the Enneagram to those venues, especially if it, if you're using it integrated with your faith, right? And so he does a really good job of saying, hey, what works well in terms of language and packaging for the corporate sector? And he's got some great resources there that I would encourage, especially if you're kind of well-versed in the Enneagram, but looking for a different approach to it, I'd recommend his stuff. Yeah. Well, if people want to find out more about you, the book, other places, where would you direct them to go? Um, and just to find out more about the work that you're doing on the Enneagram. Yeah. So the main hub would be my uh, website for this work that I do, which is called Type Trail. And yep. so www.typetrail.co. And there you can find a lot more information about the teaching and coaching that I do. Um, you can find books on Amazon uh, for sure. And then uh, we, I co-host a podcast on the Enneagram called Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast with two other good friends and uh, Enneagram guys. So uh, if you're, lo- and that's kind of designed to be a next level kind of resource as well, once you've kind of got the basics down. Yeah. Well, we'll link all of those in the show notes for this pod- podcast episode, but Drew, thank you so much for being here this weekend at Upper House, and thank you for taking the time to have a conversation around the Enneagram today. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been a joy and a fun conversation. The Upwards Podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.